Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. When we did our declaration episode last year, Hannah, author and Harvard professor Daniel Allen told us the document was a masterclass in political philosophy unto itself. That you can hear pro-slavery and anti-slavery voices in it. And then there was something that we didn't talk about in the episode. Uh, In a recent interview on Vox, she said, one of the big things we get wrong when we talk about the Declaration is that we think it was written entirely by Thomas Jefferson. He put on his tombstone, author, Declaration of Independence. That was a real self-aggrandizing gesture. In fact, he was the scribe. The intellectual work of the Declaration was driven significantly by John Adams and Benjamin Franklin. That's an important thing to say out loud because Adams is somebody who never owned slaves and Franklin was somebody who wasn't in slavery earlier in his life and who repudiated enslavement and in fact became a proactive vocal advocate of abolition. And when we spoke with Danielle, she noted this, that there are pro-slavery and anti-slavery voices in the Declaration. But then she followed up that there is one community that shared no such duality. Um, You can't say the same thing about the treatment of Native Americans. You can't see a a moment of sort of positivity in the Declaration on that front. And this is really, for me, the worst moment in the Declaration, the one piece of the Declaration that still, I think, really hurts. I'm Nick Capodice. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And this is Civics 101, the podcast refresher course on the basics of how our democracy works. Today is our second revisit to our founding document. We wanted to focus on that particular grievance and its social and political reverberations. I spoke with author, activist, and independent candidate for president, Mark Charles, and I'll let him introduce himself. Yeah, so, uh, Mark Charles, in our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineal as a people, and our identities come from our mother's mother. So my mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and that's why I say Loosely translated, that means I'm from the wooden shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also And then my fourth clan, my father's father, is That's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. That's really interesting because, you know, whenever we introduce ourselves, like even at the beginning of each podcast, we say our first name and our last name and leave it at that. But the Navajo introduction roots oneself in the lands and the people that are a part of you. It's an active form of self-identifying. I also just want to acknowledge that I am speaking to you today from Washington, D.C., And Washington, D.C. is the traditional land of the Piscataway. 
The Piscataway are the native nation. They lived here, they hunted here, they farmed here, they fished here, they raised their families here, they buried their dead here, their society was here. And this was the nation that was removed from these lands um, uh, and when these lands were colonized. So they were here long before Columbus got lost at sea. And then they were removed from these lands so the District of Columbia, the state of Maryland, the state of Virginia could be established. I like to acknowledge the people whose land I'm on no matter where I go around the country. So everywhere I speak, when I travel, I always acknowledge the host people of the land. And I want to acknowledge today the Piscataway. And I want to thank them publicly for their stewardship of these lands. And I want to thank them for the honor of, of living, of being on their lands today. I called Mark to talk about the declaration, but he said first we had to go back to another set of documents from about 300 years earlier, which created a concept of international law called the Doctrine of Discovery. To be honest, I actually haven't heard of that. And I'm a little abashed because we did an entire series on the founding documents. What is the Doctrine of Discovery? The Doctrine of Discovery is a series of papal bulls. They're edicts of the Catholic Church, written between 1452 and 1493. Uh, they say things like invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever, reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, convert them to his and to their use and profit. That quote is from the papal bull Dum Diversus in 1452. A papal bull, by the way, is a public decree or a charter that's issued by the Pope. And Dum Diversus was issued in 1452 by Pope Nicholas V. So the Doctrine of Discovery, it's essentially the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, whatever lands you find, they're not ruled by white European Christian rulers. Those people are subhuman and their land is yours for the taking. So this is literally the doctrine that let European nations go into Africa colonize the continent and enslave the people because they didn't believe them to be human. It's the same doctrine that um, allowed Columbus, who was lost at sea, to land in this new world which was already inhabited by millions and claimed to have discovered it. If you think about it, you cannot discover lands already inhabited. That's called stealing. It's called conquering, called colonizing. The fact that our history books, our monuments, our our um, proclamations refer to Columbus as the discoverer of America. This reveals the implicit racial bias of the nation, which is that Native people specifically and people of color in general are not fully human. And I would guess, right, that the dehumanization of non-whites results in a drastic expansion of the church's power across the whole world. So how is this idea of enslavement and the taking of land tied to the Declaration of Independence. Well, Mark wanted to mention one more step before 1776. It's a proclamation of King George III given to the 13 colonies in 1763. In this proclamation, one of the things he did was he essentially drew a line down the Appalachian Mountains. And he said to the colonies that were here that they no longer had the right of discovery of the empty Indian lands west of Appalachia. That right, he said, belonged to the crown, not to the colonists. Now, this is where there was a break between the northern colonies up where Canada is and the southern colonies, which were the 13 of the U.S., where the northern colonies accepted the proclamation of 1763. Didn't change the history. The lands were still discovered. They were just discovered by the crown, not the colonies. 1763 is also the year of the end of the French and Indian War, also known as the Seven Years' War. 
and that's when what became Canada changed from French hands to British control. And this proclamation actually started to set up guidance on how to protect indigenous rights to the land. Uh, it's a huge factor in Canadian land rights even to this day. But the southern colonies, and when I say southern, I mean all of the 13 colonies that eventually became the United States, they rejected this. They wanted that land for themselves. They wanted that right of discovery. And so they made an official complaint. So a few years later, they write a letter of protest. In their letter of protest, they have a list of grievances against the king. One of the grievances is that he's raising the, the level of conditions for new appropriations of land. The other grievance, this is one of their last grievances, is that he's endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose only known rule of warfare is the complete destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. It's literally, this is the Declaration of Independence. I have thought of the Declaration as an announcement of separation, a justification for revolution, but I'd never considered it as a letter of protest. The grievances, frankly, get short shrift when we examine the document, but they are all tied to very specific frustrations with England, uh, with the king, and those two paired together embed this racist doctrine of discovery into our very founding. So 30 lines below the statement, all men are created equal, the Declaration of Independence refers to natives as savages, making it very clear that the founding fathers use this inclusive term all men merely because they had a very narrow definition of who was actually human. So this makes the Declaration of Independence a blatant, systemically white supremacist document. Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, we are in the district to talk to the people that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch. That is the largest employer in the world. And a lot of those people work in the civil service where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job. But if you run a business and you're not the federal government, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead with Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute, and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash civics. Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire? You need Indeed. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. And it's not just the ethical problem of considering a whole people as savages. The doctrine of discovery becomes embedded into American law. In 1823, the Supreme Court ruled in the case of Johnson versus McIntosh. And it's two men of European descent. They're litigating over a single piece of land. One of them got the land, acquired the land from a, a tribe. The other one acquired the same land from the government. They want to know who owned it. So the case goes all the way to the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court, this is John Marshall's court. He was the, the chief justice at the time. They had to decide the principle that land titles were based on. They ruled that the principle was that discovery gave title to the land. And then they referenced the doctrine of discovery. And John Marshall actually wrote, he said, um, but the Indians who inhabited these lands were fierce savages. Um, whose subsistence came chiefly from the forest. To leave them in possession of their own country was to leave the country a wilderness. This is in, in, the, in the opinion he wrote in Johnson versus McIntosh. So literally the conclusion of this opinion is that title is based on discovery and natives, even though we were here first, but because we're savages, we are merely occupants of the land. Like a fish occupies water, a bird occupies air. Meanwhile, Europeans who have the right of discovery to the land, the fee title to it, they're the true title holders. So that case back in 1823 creates the legal precedent for land titles based on this understanding that natives are savages. How long did that Supreme Court precedent remain? That land titles are based on, quote, discovery? That decision, Marshall's decision, was cited in 1954, 1985, and most recently, 2005. Are you kidding? What was the 2005 case? It was the city of Sherrill versus the Oneida Indian Nation of New York. To take it back, at the time of our founding, the Oneida Indian Nation owned about 6 million acres of land, which the George Washington administration reduced to a few hundred thousand and set aside as a reservation. The Oneida sold much of that land to New York State over the next 200 years. So in the 1990s, the United Indian Nation came back to the state of New York and they purchased some of their traditional lands on the open market. They paid full price for them. And they wanted to reestablish some of their traditional sovereignty over these lands. Now, the lands they bought were within the city limits of the city of Sherrill. And if they had sovereignty over them, it meant they wouldn't pay taxes on them. The city of Sherrill wanted their tax revenue, so they sued the United Indian Nation in federal district court. The case went to the Supreme Court in 2004, and in 2005, the opinion was written. In the first footnote of the case, the court references the doctrine of discovery by name. They then go on to establish that because these lands were settled by, were settled by white people, that there was no precedent for giving the land back. 
they then go on and they build the argument that these lands there have since been converted from wilderness to become parts of city like Cheryl. They used that exact word, wilderness? They did. They are reiterating the exact words of Justice Marshall. So the, the court in 2005 is making the exact same argument. It's just not using the word savages, but it's making the same argument. And so then they conclude that the Oneida Indian nation cannot rekindle embers of sovereignty that have long ago grown cold. It's one of the most white supremacist Supreme Court opinions in my lifetime. And that opinion was written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But given the extraordinary passage of time, the Oneida's long delay in seek seeking equitable relief in court against New York or its local units, and developments in the city of Cheryl spanning several generations, we reject the piecemeal shift in governance. This suit seeks And you ask yourself, how can this happen while our nation is literally having a debate about systemic institutionalized white supremacy and we're, we're calling out these racist symbols and we're making some even big changes and yet we still celebrate this document that literally calls native savages. Mark told me the reason he wants to have a national conversation about this is that when we talk about institutional racism and white supremacy, we don't just deal with the low-hanging fruit. Right, the low-hanging fruit is Andrew Jackson. Most Americans can agree he was a problem, we have to deal with him. The low-hanging fruit is the Confederate flag and General Lee, you know? Most people can agree, yeah, they didn't represent the best of America. The low-hanging fruit is Christopher Columbus. Yes, he was a pretty vile person who, who way overstepped his bounds of what he should have done. That's the low-hanging fruit. And yeah, we can all agree those are not good pieces of our history and our legacy to deal with. But because we're dealing with systemic racism and institutionalized white supremacy, we also have to realize that's going to affect the core of who we are. So we have to also look at what's at the center. Abraham Lincoln, who was a blatant white supremacist and literally committed genocide against Native peoples in the states of Minnesota, Colorado, and New Mexico, including my own people, the Navajo, in the Long Walk. We have to look at the Declaration of Independence. It's the value statements for our nation. And what I'm saying is, until we have a foundation that actually allows for the humanity of everybody, our laws are never going to reflect that. If you have a house that's built on a bad foundation, you're going to have cracks in your walls, you're going to have um, gaps in your windowsills, you're going to have a creaky, crooked floor. Now, you can paint your walls all you want, you can caulk your windows as much as you want, you can new carpet your, your floor every, every summer. But until you fix the foundation, you're never going to fix the house. And so this is where a new law isn't going to solve these problems. We have to deal with the foundation. And so I propose that let's remove the racism, the sexism, and the white supremacy from our foundations. That's two out of three declaration responses. The third will be in a couple weeks. Today's episode is produced by me, Nick Capodice, with you, Hannah McCarthy. Thank you. 
Our staff includes Jackie Fulton and Felix Poon. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Music in this episode by Young Carts, Subharmonic Bliss, Emily Sprague, and To Hear Him Is To Love Him, Chris Zabriskie. Also, if there are any teachers out there who want to join our cabinet to get paid to work with us to create lesson plans and activities to pair with our show, get all of the details at civics101podcast.org backslash info. Finally, Hannah and I are going to host an on-air Ask Civics segment uh, weekly on New Hampshire Public Radio. So if you have any questions you like answered in the lead up to this massive election, send them our way. Email us at civics101 at nhpr.org. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.